during the Puritan and colonial era, it was customary to preach an election day sermon, and this was done throughout the colonies for the express purpose of educating Christ's church as to their duty in that election cycle in order to preserve their God-given liberties. As we approach the celebration of America's as we approach the celebration of America's independence, even during this primary election cycle, we too should be reminded as to our duty to preserve those liberties. A roll covenant reading coming from the psalmist, Psalm 119, beginning in stanza 41 through stanza 47, 41 through 47. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning, as David tells us exactly what liberty is. By inspiration of God, he says this, Let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord, even thy salvation according to thy word. So shall I have wherewith to answer him that reproacheth me, for I trust in thy word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I have hoped in thy judgments. So shall I keep thy law continually forever and ever. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek thy precepts. I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings, and will not be ashamed. And I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I have loved." Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, his second epistle to the church at Corinth, to the Corinthians, chapter 3, the entirety of the text. As Paul speaks of the commendation of the ministry and how it changes lives. The same spirit, the Apostle Paul says this, Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? Ye are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Forasmuch as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in the fleshly tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, For if that which was done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel of liberty presented unto us again this day. Historian George Bancroft once stated that while we consider Washington, Adams, and Jefferson, as well as Madison as the founders of America, 
and the Puritans as America's grandfathers. It was actually John Calvin himself, the great reformer, who must be given credit as America's great-grandfather. And while that is true, it was actually Theodore Beza, Calvin's successor, that was most influential in influencing the Puritans to engage the culture in order to build a social construct that glorified God. Calvin set the stage for cultural reconstruction, but Beza built the societal apparatus that gave way to the actual recalibrating of society and its several institutions. The Puritans believed that the construct of civil government and the cultural order should never be neutral. It could never be neutral. Since neutrality is a myth, there can be no such thing as neutrality, especially when it comes to theological and religious ideas, because everyone holds to some religious idea. Everyone holds to some belief system. Everyone believes something. And once you say, I believe this thing, or I believe that thing, you have stated a religious presupposition. You have stated that you have a religious basis for your thinking. Man will think, act, and live according to his own particular religious presuppositions. He will either be covenantly minded of the supremacy of God or covenantly rebellious before him. And so the cultural order will either be conformed to the word of God or it will be conformed to the mind of man. Either the word of God or the mind of man. For the Puritans, the social order had to be based either in God and his just laws or man who without regeneration was trapped in a fallen sinful state and entirely unpredictable, entirely corrupt, entirely wicked education, government, law, public policy, all of these things could never be neutral. And that is what the Puritans knew. You can't just say, well, I don't have an opinion on this or I don't have an opinion on that. Everyone has an opinion on something. Everyone holds to some belief structure. The Puritans understood that everyone functioned, every soul functions according to a religious lordship operating principle. Either man is God or God is God. You can't be both. You can't have both of those presuppositions. Either you're going to look at man as God or God as God. For the most part, the Lord of the flesh, man himself, his mind, his religious ideas, for the most part, man is God. In his mind, autonomous man is the one making the laws. Man desires to be as God. Man desires to be God to be like God, to do things that only God can do. And his battle cry is, I will not have this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, rule over me. I will be his God. I will be the one who defines all things, even language. Man is defining language now. If the societal order was to be properly maintained Godward, the sphere of civil government and the societal order at large must function according to a set standard of principles, which when applied, launches the actual development of institutions and the execution of policy. In other words, ideas have consequences, and those ideas are ultimately based upon a network of religious presuppositions commonly called worldviews. Everyone has a view of the world. And this network of thoughts and ideas are ultimately concerned with the principles of right and wrong, good and evil, God and man, and directly formulate the political theory of government, which when applied, formulates political policy. So all of our political policies that we have today come out of a worldview, whether good or evil. Every institutional establishment, since they are directly based upon certain ideas, presuppositions, which are directly based upon a network of philosophical presuppositions, which in turn make up a particular world and life view, which are based upon a theological presupposition, are fundamentally religious in nature. You can't get away from the fact that man is religious. And to say that there is the separation between secular and sacred is nonsense. Everything is sacred. Everything is religiously based. And so every institutional structure, including every foundational idea upon which the institution is based upon, is at its root religious. Everyone and everything is based upon a religious principle. Simply put, everything known to man is born out of a religious ideology. Aspects of culture are either Christocentric, 
Christ-centered or anthropocentric, man-centered. Either Christ-centered or man-centered, and it cannot be both. You can give lip service to the fact that you are Christocentric, but in your practice, in your orthopraxy, you are going to show forth whether you are truly Christ-centered or man-centered. So whenever a societal construct is built upon the mind of man, liberty slowly erodes and tyranny begins its ascent. Liberty, in order for it to be genuine and enduring, must be defined biblically. In other words, we must decide on a standard which will both establish and secure liberty. And Scripture gives us that standard. Scripture gives us a straightforward explanation of liberty. And it says this, where the Spirit of the Lord is, where God's Spirit is, and I would even hasten to say only where God's Spirit is, when God's Spirit is the dominating factor then you have liberty. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Fully aware of this, David the psalmist says almost the same thing. In Psalm 119, verse 45, he says, And I will walk at liberty because I seek thy precepts. When understood in the fullness of its context, these verses are admonishing the people of God to take heed to the law of Moses, the precepts of God, as the standard of lawful obedience and how we are to structure society. Furthermore, Scripture also states that the Word of God is the truth of God and truth itself. Notice John 17, 17. Jesus says this, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word, or thy precepts, or thy commandment, or the Scripture. Thy word is truth. Note, not only is the word true, it's truth itself. We are then to assume the following. Number one, all belief systems are either based in man or in God. All belief systems are either based in man or they're based in God. Secondly, all belief systems find their originating seed, their genesis, in either man's reason or God's revelation. All belief systems find their genesis either in man's reason or God's revelation. Third, they are either humanistic or theistic. Fourth, political policy, along with every other public policy, is organically religious. Theologian Greg Bonson comments, he says, quote, Any conception of the role of civil government that claims to be distinctively Christian must be explicitly justified by the teaching of God's revealed word. Anything else reflects what the unbelieving world in rebellion against God may imagine on its own. If we are to be Christian disciples, even in the political realm, it is prerequisite that we abide in his liberating word, end quote. So when society, when social theory becomes policy, when social theory becomes policy, the policy is enforced by the power of either the government or the people, either for good or for evil, depending on its notion of good and evil. So simply put, social policies, social laws, are then made efficacious. In other words, they were effectuated, they become manifested by the threat of physical force or pressure from the masses upon the powers that are in operation. We're seeing this today. The wicked don't like some of the righteous laws, so they put pressure on people. They intimidate people. When a government, which is authoritarian and tyrannical, want to pass their unjust legislation, they give the threat of force, the threat of violence. Put you in prison, take away your property, and so on and so forth. And these things are what the Puritans knew. And why they sought to enforce a structure of godly government and godly laws, beginning in the home with the family, which would ensure liberty under God so as to ensure against the tyranny of man. They understood that man was bent on tyranny. They understood that whenever a societal construct is structured, maintained, and protected biblically, that society will never become wicked, nor will its government become tyrannical. That was the safeguard. 
a biblically-based society with biblically-based laws. For the Puritans, this civil and cultural order of society had to be based upon a Christ-centered theological presupposition. And it was upon that basis that would ensure liberty for all. In light of this, the Puritans did not retreat from involvement in in the civil realm, nor did they ever imagine that the societal order, including education, politics, and law, should ever be dominated by the ideologies of humanism. That was the furthest thing from their mind. They refused to abandon the culture. They refused to abandon it, because knowing if they ever abandoned the culture, it would not only would they shirk their responsibilities their duties as Christians, but the society would implode. And this is why we find ourselves in our position today. When the church abandons its cultural mandate, the society falls apart. To them, to shirk your responsibility of engaging in the culture was anathema. For the Puritans, that was their new world. America was their new world. It was their new Jerusalem. And America was to be God's world. It was to be God's America. The hope of a new earth conformed to the mandates of the inerrant word of truth and life. That was what they were hoping for. A new heaven and a new earth here in America. It was to be a city upon a hell with Christ as its Lord and Sovereign. They believed that every aspect and sphere of life has its root and reason in God. In other words, nothing exists outside of Christ's dominion. He was to them, and He is the Sovereign Lord, the undisputed Creator, Lawgiver, Judge, and Owner of all things that exist. The Puritans also understood that God had not created a dualistic universe where there was a division between things secular and sacred. There was no such thing as separation of church and state. It was never to be a godless society. The church had to be involved in the state. And the state was to protect the church. Today, when you talk about the separation of church and state, what they really mean is a separation between God and state. That was never to be the case. God had not created the universe in a dualistic fashion. He'd never left it up to some naturalistic mechanism of the laws of nature, as the deists would suppose. The Puritans understood that God is covenantally interactive. And I want to stress that term covenantally interactive with his creation, with his people, with the people of the world. And according to his eternal decree, he providentially executes all things in heaven and on earth for the glory and advancement of his kingdom. He's interactive. He's not out there somewhere as a a God who is out there hunting or, or, or doing this or doing that without any regard to what's happening here. He's interactive. The Puritans also knew that whenever man sinned, because God is covenantly interactive, there would be chastening consequences. That was to them an essential truth. They viewed Deuteronomy 28 as the operating sanctions for obedience and rebellion. Obey and be blessed, rebel and be cursed. Not only individually, but nationally. And this motivated the Puritans to be very particular about how America would be structured. The reason why we are in such a graveyard spiral is because people don't believe that God is active in the world. People aren't even believing that God is active or even exists today. And it was the church. Those faithful Puritan pastors and evangelists that were to act as the prophets of God in order to keep a close eye on the civil magistrates. They understood of the doctrine of man's sinful nature was also a fundamental doctrine to be embraced That man, in his natural state, was sinful. And he had to be chained by the word of God. And if the societal order was to function properly in righteousness, holiness, and peace, man could not be left without those restraints. And that restraint was the law of God. Simply put, it was the law of God. It wasn't even the Constitution. Because at the time of the Puritans, there were no constitutions yet. At least not the one that we know of. It was God's law, which was absolute, without any changes that could ever be made. It could never be a wax nose like the Constitution of the United States has become. 
the restraint of society would come by way of God's law. And as a result, a theocratic republic was established. It was a theonomic commonwealth based upon biblical covenantalism. As concerning government, the Puritans understood that since government is a decree of the Almighty, its construct had to be biblical. And that's important for us to recognize. Government, the structure of government, the invention of government, let me put it that way, the invention of government is a God invention. It was invented by God. Government is not a necessary evil, as the political philosopher and radical atheist Thomas Paine and natural law theorist John Locke declared. Government and its particular structure, including the laws by which it functions, are to be of God. In his misunderstanding of the organic nature, structure, and proper function of government, notice what Thomas Paine said. He said, government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil. In its worst state, an intolerable one. But government is an invention of God. While not believing the government was a necessary evil, John Locke, he didn't believe it was a necessary evil, he took the idea that government should be placed in the hands of the people as the originating force. So he takes it from God and he puts it in the hands of the people, making the people God. Notice what Locke said. Locke contended that all government, quote, all government was originated by mankind in terms of a social contract for the preservation of those human rights which nature, notice not God, had conferred upon man from man, through the compact or contract, government derived all its just powers, and hence all government exists by the consent of the governed. Now, on the outset, that sounds pretty good. But from a theological vantage point, it is heresy. He is making man God. According to Locke's theory, the ruler was no longer subject to God, but rather to the people and to what he called natural law. A very ambiguous title, natural law. What does natural law mean? What is natural? You know, whenever you go to the supermarket and you're looking for something to eat or something to cook, it says natural. And then you look at all the chemicals in it. It's not natural. So what is natural? It's an ambiguity. According to Locke, God no longer administered the structure of government. But rather now, in Locke's mind an unseen, unidentified, and vague notion of nature would now be the lawgiver over men and nations and the government they enact. And what's an added insult is that John Locke was a Puritan. And his vague notion of natural law would then structure the culture and all societal institutions. And according to that model, the organizing apparatus of society was no longer the law of God, it was taken right out of God's hands and given to the will and whim of the people as they arbitrarily decide what natural law had revealed. It's natural to say, my body, my choice, until, of course, you can refuse the vaccine. So this is the genesis of America's demise. To replace God's law with what Locke calls natural law. This was the open door to an evolutionary process whereby man could now claim that nature, not God, not his word, dictated something new. We see this in the church today. We hear it all the time. Well, my sanctified common sense. What does that even mean? Well, I prayed about it. I have to walk by the Spirit. But the word says otherwise. Well, I prayed about it. It's natural that I do what I want to do. You see, it's even in the church. And so as man progressed, or digressed, new and creative laws would have to be established for modern times according to the natural progression of the people, which in my view is the fickleness of the people, the whim of the people, the wickedness of the people. According to scripture and contrary to Newton, 
Payne and Locke, government is an ordination of God. Not of man, not of natural law. And it has been created with a proper structure and function. And it is only that structure and function which ensures liberty, justice, equity, and peace. You depart from the law of God in structuring society and you can guarantee tyranny at one point or another in the future. Harold J. Brown observes in his book, The Reconstruction of the Republic, he says, quote, If we accept the fundamental principles that government is legitimate, ordained by God, and has a function assigned to it by God, it is evident that Christians ought to have a positive attitude toward it. According to Tertullian, the Christian is to society as the soul is to the body. He is to have an animating effect. Notice, we are to have an animating effect upon government. He is to have an animating effect, giving it the spirit by which it is to be governed. So if it is true that government is a creation of God, and instrumental in the societal construct, and its proper nature, structure, and execution is detailed in Scripture, then only God has the legitimate authority to say when government and its laws are acceptable and when they are not. Not the Supreme Court, even though they did a good thing just recently. Not the Congress, not the Senate, not the Governor, not the President. God. Now, while we tend to focus only on civil government when discussing government, Government establishes itself in various ways and in various spheres of civilization. There is, of course, individual government, whereby the self is governed according to certain assumptions and belief structures. You will live your life according to your religious presupposition. If you are a Christian, you will find your directives in the Word of God. If you're not, you'll do whatever you want to do. Secondly, There is also then family government. After individual government, family government. Self-government, then family government. That's also governed by a set of ethical and structural presuppositions. Next, we have ecclesiastical government, the church. And then finally, and then finally, civil government. Now, if we trace the historical events that have brought America to its present political apostasy, we observe that since the time of the Puritans, this nation has gradually been drifting away from the godly principles that originally established her toward a more paganized humanistic structure, partly as a result of the adoption of this natural law theory. It was the adoption of natural law theory that began the long slide downward into chaos and totalitarianism. Theologian and philosopher Gordon Clark comments, he says, quote, The theory of natural law commits a major logical blunder. No matter how carefully or how intricately one describes what men do, it is a logical impossibility to conclude that this or that is what men ought to do. The is never implies the ought, end quote. In other words, What man is doing isn't necessarily what they ought to be doing. So natural law theory cannot answer the question, what should men be doing? Now in 1651, right smack in the middle of the Puritan era, Thomas Hobbes writes his monumentous work, Leviathan. He writes his work, Leviathan, which argued for a strong centralized government as the only sure protection of the people. And this began the shift and the slide into big government and a humanistic ideology, all based upon the abstract notion of natural law. You see, his book, Leviathan, was basically a repudiation of a biblical platform of government and society since it was purely humanistic in nature. In fact, he negated the totality of man's depravity. He negated the total depravity of man. Hobbes posited that human beings weren't depraved. They were naturally rational. And they were self-interested and were intent on their own self-preservation, which he saw as good. And to achieve this preservation, Hobbes believed that individuals, get this, individuals ought to and would even gladly give up their freedom and all their personal rights to decide on the political policies which guaranteed them the state to act as their sole provider of personal security. Hobbes believed that individuals would consent 
voluntarily consent to an authoritarian type of statist government in order to be secure. And this concept is what moved Benjamin Franklin to later observe, quote, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty or safety. What makes Hobbes' idea such a reality today rests in the fact that unregenerate mankind will trust unregenerate mankind before they trust God out of their hatred for God. How many people do you know go to man for their counsel or go to someone who they know is not a Christian and get their marching orders instead of going to to someone who's truly a biblical scholar or someone who knows the scriptures? According to John A. Fielding's critique of the Roman Cicero on natural law, he comments this, quote, Natural law was the source of unlimited power of the state and indeed became identical to it for the purpose of ruling. Natural law and ruling go together. Natural law and unlimited power go together. Theologian, author, and apologist Archie Jones says this, quote, Abstract theories of natural law can provide no such protections for the individual's life, person, property, or, or liberty, nor for the family or church. can't guarantee anything. It can only guarantee tyranny. The Reverend William Einwechter observes this. He says, quote, All natural law theories of law and justice lead in practice to a form of legal positivism. Locke's solution was no less tyrannical than Hobbes's because its concept and power rested in humanism's ideology of natural law, a political ideology that has its root in humanism, where man becomes God, always devolves into statism and tyranny. It wasn't until the ideas of the Enlightenment took a former hold in the 18th century in American thought that things really began to unravel. The Enlightenment proved to be the philosophical stranglehold upon Puritanism and the application of theonomy for a constitutional theocracy. Until that time, Calvinism and the Puritan influence was clearly seen in in English and American thought, structuring the political, constitutional, legal, and cultural framework. But by the time of the Enlightenment, that started to unravel. Let's for a moment consider the historical development of Western civilization as a result of the adoption of God's law before the adoption of natural law theory. Now, you need to know where we have failed. In order to fix what we have before us, we need to know where we failed. And this idea of natural law theory is part of the failure. As a result of Christianity, most of Europe's early political, legal, and social structure followed Scripture. Even as far back as Justinian and Charlemagne, we find a sense of justice rooted in biblical law and the application of it to the realm. They anticipated the covenant sanctions that God had placed in Deuteronomy, knowing that if they rebelled, there would be sanctions. Negative. If they obeyed, applying the law of God to the realm, they would be blessed. After the example of Justinian, England's Alfred the Great codified the law of Moses. And what did Alfred do? All he did was take Moses' law and wrote it down as the laws of England. It became the common law. It became the English common law, where we used to get most of our laws from. It was this God-centered common law, coupled with the ideas of Calvin, Beza, and Johannes Althusius, that the American colonists, known as the Puritans, brought with them to the New World. By 1541, Calvin had already established Geneva as a biblical commonwealth. In fact, for all intents and purposes, his institutions, in concert with a working knowledge of God's law, became the governing authority in Geneva, since it was largely patterned after the Hebrew commonwealth. And as far as Calvin and the city fathers of Geneva were concerned, in order to ensure justice, peace, equality, God's law had to be the only standard of political, legal, and social theory. They wanted a peaceful society. They wanted God's blessings. And for them, God's law dictated policy, not man, not natural law. The implementation of God's law secured the covenant community as a biblical commonwealth, a theonomic theocracy. And by definition, a commonwealth is a political unit 
founded on law and united by compact or covenant of the people for the common good. And the common good was to be protected by the magistrates by upholding the law of God as it related to governance. So whenever you read that Pennsylvania or Virginia is is a commonwealth, originally it was to be a commonwealth under God's law. Not a commonwealth of natural law, not a commonwealth of the mind of the people. It was to be a commonwealth of God's law. Theologian and political scholar, a name that you are probably not familiar with, Joannes Althusius, believed that the grand design for humankind, as it pertained to government and politics, was to be based on a network of covenants, beginning with those between God and man, which would, he, which he said this, which would, quote, weave the web of human relationships, especially those of a political nature. Notice how they're pointing back to God, back to the genesis of righteousness, back to the genesis of God's law. And this idea is what constituted a biblical commonwealth. Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion was declared by the Genevan city fathers and adopted by the governing magistrates as as important as the scriptures. Because they understood that his idea of God's word and the application of God's law was structuring Geneva according to theonomic biblical principles which would ensure their liberty. The ethical values, including the penology of the Old Testament, became the basis of the law in Geneva. This was the Puritan model for the New World, and this is what the Puritans wanted to bring to America. Perhaps this is best evidenced in the ideas of John Winthrop, who brought to America in the early days of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in the mid-1600s the biblical notion of a theocratic commonwealth. Winthrop believed that in order to attain God's blessings, a community had to abide by God's biblical law. And this, he believed, would establish the community as a Christian community in covenant with God. As long as the community was obedient, they would receive the blessing of God. If it rebelled, the entire commonwealth, the nation, would receive harsh chastisements for breaking the oath. And we don't see that today. Americans don't believe that when... There's sin in the land, God brings devastation, whether it's economic devastation, a national devastation through weather, or even military by other nations coming in, such as the immigration from the border, and so on. We could just point so many, so many things that God is doing to judge this nation, to wake them up. If you want to point one out, it's like pointing to a hole in a piece of Swiss cheese. You, you can't just, you can't count them all. Winthrop understood that there were both positive and negative sanctions. He believed that only by obeying God's law could real liberty be established. He stated that in the state of nature, there could be no freedom. Because natural freedom was a perversion of true freedom, biblical freedom, since mankind in their natural state, without the operation of grace from the new birth, was sinful and self-serving. So there was no such thing as natural freedom. There was only freedom under God. That's the only freedom. In Winthrop's model of government, he posited this. One, a Christian community exists in covenant with God. I would go further to say all communities are in covenant with God, either they're covenant keepers or covenant breakers. Secondly, This covenant is an agreement to live in accordance with God's law. In this way, true liberty, and only in this way, could true liberty be secured. Thirdly, the government is to enforce God's law. Fourth, citizens are to obey the government as long as, as long as, and let me repeat it again, as long as they are faithful to the law of God. Fifth, civil liberty is freedom under God alone. It is not anarchistic liberty whereby every man is a law unto himself, nor is it extreme libertarianism where every man does what is right in his own eyes, but rather it is liberty under God's ethical jurisdiction and his divine limitations. We are limited in what we do and what we think and how government is structured by the law of God. That's what gives us freedom. Sixth, Pure democracy is a corruption of God's will and cannot bring about just government since natural man, as a result of the fall, cannot be trusted. Seven, only the elect 
only God-fearing individuals should be considered to govern since only they are to understand the law of God. We need honest people, honest politicians, statesmen, once again, who fear God and who keep His commandments. And finally, all others, everyone, everyone, without exception, Christian, non-Christian, I don't care who they are, all others must obey the laws of God and be subordinate to just government. So Winthrop argued that the role of a legitimate civil government was there to enforce God's law. He saw God's law as liberty and he saw that as being inseparable with God's law. So God's law and liberty were yoked together. They were inseparable. As long as citizens obeyed the scriptures, citizens would remain truly free. He believed that liberty flowed... You know, let me just pause and give you a footnote. If your life is screwed up, I'll be very clear. If you're messed up, if you're confused, if you're in chaos, you're not following God's law. Basically, that's it. It's as simple as that. If you want to get yourself together, if you want your mind to be right, if you want your life to be right, if you want your family in order, if you want yourself to be in order, if you want your, 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 your money to be in order, your economics to be in order, follow the Word of God. It's as simple as that. It's not rocket science. You don't need to be a, uh, an academic to understand those things. So as long as people obey the scriptures, they would remain truly free. Winthrop believed that liberty flowed from a moral observance of the Old Testament law because only God's law could show man what is good. The good he believed was external to man. We don't have good in us. It's outside of us. God is telling us what is good. He's put it in our conscience, but we've subjected our conscience to our own lust, so, so we've subverted the Word of God. We've, we've, we've put it down. We've, we've squashed it. He believed that good was external to man, and therefore it must be imposed upon man by God's good and by His Holy Word. A community would then be measured by its obedience to God's word. If a community, or an entire nation for that matter, remained faithful in its governing structure and execution, it would be then a city upon a hill, as a gift of God to all mankind. Professor John Huffman said this, Winthrop upheld the biblical view that lawful liberty is found only in obedience to the will of God as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. It is not based upon rights, hear people screaming, oh, we want our rights. Not based upon rights, but rather upon duty. When this is understood, all questions of morality become crystal clear. Christians should not oppose abortion because babies have a right to life. Think about that statement. Rather, he says, we oppose abortion because God says, thou shalt not kill. When we argue human rights, our enemies will take our own rationalistic argument and use it against us, demanding a right to worship as they please, a right to engage in immorality, a right to speak and live as they choose. Our argument is God says it. Can't argue with that. I mean, they will, but you can't. Winthrop's idea of a city upon a hill, much like Calvin's Geneva, was the quintessential model of what the kingdom of God would look like on earth beginning in America. It was not perfect by any means, but it was righteous and just and was strikingly reconstructive. And so whenever we hear the words Christian reconstruction, that it's a new idea or an unattainable construct, just point back to Winthrop. Because that Christian reconstruction was the bedrock of our nation. And every other nation that desires liberty, justice, and peace, if every nation would have as its bedrock the Word of God, it would have liberty, justice, and peace. Isaiah said it this way, that the Christians were to build the old waste places. We must also realize that America is now being reconstructed along anti-Christian totalitarian lines. And that's why they call it the Great Reset. You might as well say the Great Humanistic Reconstruction because that's what it is. Or the great unchristian antichrist domination by reconstructing it according to natural law, theoristic and humanistic lines. So when the apostle defined the kingdom of God, he was giving mankind a picture of what a Christian commonwealth looks like. Romans fourteen seventeen: for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, not physical, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And, and, and this notion is what structured the original state constitution of America. If you ever read the original state constitutions of our states here in America, 
They were all Christocentric. The Puritans wanted their governing structure to conform to Scripture so that they would be part of a social order that was righteous, peaceful, and where they could be joyful. And the only way they could have that kingdom-like experience is by the obedience of God and His holy law. Sadly, however, the dominance of Winthrop's Puritan position waned as the 17th century advanced. The reason for it was simply this, the people fell away from the Christian faith, even the Church of Jesus Christ fell away and adopted the ideas of natural law, Darwinism and rationalism. And that, of course, we could put at the foot of the church. Division within the Protestant churches, the adoption of, of Darwin's ideas, rationalistic ideas, infighting, schism, people became bitter and cynical about faith, pietism developed, dualism, separation of God from the culture and political affairs, all of these things started after the 17th century. And we are the recipients of that apostasy. So what we have by the end of the 1700s is a nation and a people ripe for a societal system based purely upon humanistic principles and the politics of pluralism. They had all but forgotten what a biblical structure of government looked like and how it was the only remedy for tyranny. In order to be free from the tyranny of King George and the English Parliament, and that's what they wanted, they wanted to be free from that tyranny. Sadly, the Enlightenment Fathers, and that was Jefferson, Adams, Washington, Monroe, Madison, the Enlightenment thinkers, all they did was replace one tyranny for another. They replaced George's tyranny with the tyranny of the people. Neither would bring them liberty, since only where the Spirit of the Lord is can there be liberty. The fear of God had left them and was replaced with the fear of men. And that's where we are today. So, okay, in closing, what can be done? What can we do? How can we begin the long journey back, forming and installing a working cultural model based upon Scripture, which will ensure liberty long-term? Generational liberty. That's what we're looking for. First, the church. The church needs to wake up to its obligation as cultural leaders and cultural warriors. She needs to break free from simply identifying and analyzing cultural problems, because that's all people do, curse the darkness without shedding any light. They need to begin to actually develop biblical solutions and then implement them in the real world. We start with the community. Now, if the church refuses by remaining pietistic or by following a two-kingdom rapture mentality, new churches must be planted, as was done during the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s. The problem with that is, we don't have a whole lot of people, men, who want to be qualified, and I say this very carefully, who want to be qualified, and who want to sacrifice their lives for the kingdom of God. Because I can tell you right now, to be a father... A pastor over a congregation takes sacrifice. Secondly, those churches, along with parachurch organizations, must develop alternatives to the various institutions that have either been usurped by the humanists or perverted by the humanists. In other words, we need to build working institutional models in the area of education, economics, welfare, medicine, law, justice, politics, government, history, science, visual arts, movies, theaters, the media, psychology, and every other area known to man. We can do this. We can do this. We can start in the church. You can build a church institution which covers all of these things. For instance, education. You can start a school. You can help homeschoolers. Economics, we could start our own banking system. Welfare, that's what the church was all about. Why are we going to the state? Bring them to the church, make them accountable to the word of God, and help them get themselves on their feet. Don't give them a fish, teach them how to fish. Medicine, natural, natural paths. We have plenty of people who have knowledge about natural healing. Look, when you break a bone, you go to the hospital. Other than that... Keep yourself healthy. Why are we not healthy? And we're not. How can we fix that? Law, church courts. Where are you going to get a right shake? Where are you going to get the right shake? Where are you going to get a just, a just vindication of your, of your problem? In the church. Where are you going to go over there where, where victims' rights are taken away 
and the rights are given to the criminal, the perpetrator. Justice has been perverted. So where are you going to find justice? Politics, government, history, everything can be in a petri dish worked out here in the church. These models can begin in the church. These things can be perfected in the church. Then they could be introduced once they're perfected to the society at large. As Gary North is famous for saying, the late Gary North, he says, you cannot beat something with nothing. You've got to build something. Christians are called to create something which will ensure a Christ-centered world for the generations to come. We can't say we want abortion to cease without having something to support those women that cannot or will not have that abortion. Foster care. That is just destroyed. That is destroying children. Christians taking children in. Christians helping mothers to raise families, to raise children. Children having babies. The fear, the fright. And I'll tell you this. When a mother at 16 has a child because they have violated the commandment of God to be without marital relationships before marriage, when they do violate that, and that's what's going to happen, it happens too often, so you have a 13, 14, 15, 16 year old girl with a child, doesn't know what to do, the mommy says, you need to abort because it's a shameful thing, or the girl is afraid, we need to stand alongside that girl and say, what a blessing to have a child so young, because you will see your great grandchildren, would to God I could see my great grandchildren, What a great glory that is. My father-in-law sees his great-grandchildren. I know. I know. Because he got married young. I know that is a great blessing to him. Would to God I could see that. So there's always a silver lining if you do what God says we should be doing. And all of these things begin at the church. We are called to create something which will endure and ensure a Christ-centered world for the generations to come. We dare not celebrate liberty unless we are willing to sacrifice ourselves for liberty. May God be pleased to give us the wisdom, the stamina, and the necessary financial tools to do valiantly for His truth for the generations to come. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.